church. So you're in church, so you cannot lie. Be honest with, with everybody. How many of you, after last night's Alabama game, became Colorado fans? Raise your hand. <laughs> Praise God. That's what Dion was praying for. No, it's, it's interesting, just football season, the, uh, the depression rates that go around the Florence, Alabama, Shoals area, Alabama as a whole. You know, used to, I'm used to seeing it on Auburn fans' faces. It's a whole other thing to see it on Alabama fans' faces. So I just want you to know I'm praying for you. It's going to be a long year. I'm praying for you. I'm fasting for you. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time. But hey, it could be worse. You could be a Titans fan. We haven't won. Not going to win. Uh, y'all's quarterback is probably still better than our quarterback. So congratulations. You have success on your hands. Hey, a lot of good stuff going on. If you have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to continue in our Galatians series in Galatians chapter 1. You know, and this week was a, a pivotal week. Some of you are old enough to know. Some of you don't understand. But it was the, the marking, remembering 9-11, right? So most of us, if you're old enough, remember where you were at at 9-11 when it happened. And, and so some of y'all know my story. Some of you don't. I was actually in the Air Force. Uh, Toy had just gotten to Fort Meade, Maryland, just recently, right before 9-11 happened. And I worked at the National Security Agency, right? So I was in the Intel community. And I worked at night. I worked at Intel. And that morning, I got off work. I go to bed. I sleep during the day, during the daylight. And somebody started banging on our door, right? And which is not out of the normal. Some of the guys that worked during the day would come by and try to get me to go eat breakfast or go play basketball. And somebody's banging on the door. Somebody just wants to go away. And, so I'm laying there because they woke me up, and then I hear them knocking on the next door, which is pretty rare. And then I hear them knocking on the next door. So I get up, I open the door, and I see this woman, this airman, knocking on all these doors. I said, hey, what, what are you doing? She's like, you have to report to CQ now. I knew that as, from my experience, that means I'm in deep trouble. That's what I knew it as. And I said, well, I need to be in uniform. She said, no, which means you're in really bad trouble. And I was, oh, my goodness, Grace, I have no idea what's going on, you know. Cell phones were kind of newer at the time, and I pick up my barracks phone, and it had a voicemail on it, and it says, you have 23 voice messages, and all of them were just, hey, making sure you're okay, making sure you're still alive, making sure you're all right, because I was in the D.C. area. I said, I'll go down to CQ, and I see that the one building's been hit by the plane, and while I'm there, I watch the second building get hit by the plane. So if you throw that picture up, most of us remember that memory, right? And so for the next year of my life, it was really working seven days a week every single day trying to fight this battle. What happened was there was people that moved to America that embraced our freedom, that lived in our communities, that went to our schools, that were trying to take away our freedoms from the inside out. Right? One of those individuals is Muhammad Atta. He was kind of the ringleader of the thing. He lived literally right down the street from our base, so much so that after it happened, uh, this guy I went to school with, worked with, Jason, he, he missed our next football game, our flight football game. And so we're like, man, what happened to Jason? Like, no one knew. Next game he shows up. We're like, man, what happened to you? He said, I was in prison. And we're like, what? He said, Muhammad Atta lived in the same apartment complex as him. So this man who brainstormed and created this plan lived in the same apartment building as an intel analyst for the United States Air Force, who they had pictures of Muhammad Atta on our base taking pictures of the facilities, the National Security Agency. And so they came to Jason, and they said, hey, why didn't you report the fact that you made contact with a foreign national? And Jason, in all his innocence, says, everyone in D.C. is a foreign national. And so they interrogated him because there was people that could live right next door to us that were trying to take away our freedoms. See, there's always a fight for freedom. There's a fight for freedom from those who are trying to take away those freedoms because they're jealous of them. But there's also a fight for freedom from those who benefit from you not having freedom. And so there's always this fight. We saw this with the, the Revolutionary War. If you went to American history in class and you actually paid attention, like we were, we were led to believe that this war was for freedom, right? That, that the colonies were fighting against the tyranny of the king in England because they wanted freedom. And, and really, that's not the case because after the war, we see what it was really about because the, the revolutionaries, they are fighting for freedom. What they're really fighting for was money and power from the king. Not necessarily freedom because the contradiction is this, that as soon as the American Revolutionary War, these men who are giving up their lives and fighting for freedom and leaving their families and sacrificing, when they came back with brand new freedom, 
They began to take away the freedoms of Africans who are now slaves in the same colonies who just fought for freedom from the king. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same thing in the name of freedom, of religious freedom or spiritual freedom. When we claim our freedom, we as people are really bad about taking away the freedoms of other people. And in this story in Galatians, this chapter in Galatians, you'll see it happening spiritually within the first generation of the church. People are experiencing the freedom of Christ and soon thereafter trying to take away the freedom of others in Christ. In Galatians 1-6, it says this. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Everybody say different. It's a different gospel. We're one generation deep. And Paul's like, man, I, dude, I cannot believe you are turning this quickly. You're already changing to a different gospel. He said, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, meaning to take the focus off Christ and put it on other things. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And I, I said last week that word actually means let them be damned to hell is what it actually means in the Greek. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says it a second time. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of God or man? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's almost like Paul is saying, the only way you can result in a different gospel is if you start trying to please men rather than please God. And he, and he goes through this, this deep, this deep almost condemnation of the church at Galatia. And in the context of Galatia, it's in modern day Turkey. And so there wasn't very many Jews that were there. There were, there were some people with Jewish backgrounds, but it was a, pretty much a Roman colony in Turkey. And so the, the culture there was there was a ton of ex-Roman soldiers that when they retired, the Roman Empire would give them land in Galatia to retire in. So there's a lot of Roman patriotism. But there were also ethnic Jews that were there, and the ethnic Jews were given a pass because the Roman Empire, every other nation they would occupy, they would tell the people, either worship the Roman gods or you're going to die, right? So most, most other nations would conform to the Roman gods and give up their, their gods, except for the Jews who are so proud and so loyal and so devoted to their god. They would rather die than conform to the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire says, well, you know, we can't just keep killing everybody off. We need people. So what can we do? They told these devoted Jews, you can keep worshiping your God. Just pray to your God for the Romans and the Roman Empire. And we'll give you this little pass. And so they could still worship. They could still eat kosher. They could still do their sacrifices. They were still Jewish, but they just had to bring their, their Judaism, their devotion, up under the Roman Empire to make sure the Roman Empire was still flourishing and growing. And so this culture comes into play. You have these extremely Roman patriots, but also these extremely devoted Jews. And they're starting to collide inside this church where you have an authentic group of Christian believers. It was so powerful, the Roman Empire would celebrate everything, that even one of the roads that led through Galatia was named after Augustus Caesar. And when it was named after Augustus Caesar, it was actually called the Divine Road, because Augustus is the one who created the freedoms that they have, created the prosperity that they have, created the, the one world empire that they were living in, created the pride of being Roman. And so every time they'd walk down the road or travel down the road, they were actually worshiping Augustus. And so much so that every single house had to display some honor to Caesar on their house. And so to walk through town, it was almost like idol after idol after idol after idol, celebrating the political victories of Caesar. And so as Paul travels and plants this church with a few believers who found freedom in Jesus, found the power of his blood. Just a generation later, he looks back, he wants to come see them, and he's seeing this church that experienced the freedom of Jesus is now being polluted with the patriotism of the culture and the tradition of the Jews. And they start fighting over this freedom of Jesus. And so the, the gospel is always under attack 
Because people don't understand. Until you've received the gospel and experienced it, you don't understand it. And when people don't understand it, they don't want you having freedom. No one thinks that the murderer who's on death row, just because he repents and turns his life around to Jesus, deserves freedom. And so when they experience freedom, the world goes crazy. It says, no, no, we have to do something to stop that. And so the two pressures that are always on the church, today and forever, two pressures, external pressure, the culture that's outside the walls of this church, the political, the social, the cultural things outside the church are always trying to press into the church to get us to conform to the outward pressure. But there's also internal pressure, which is our customs, our traditions, our backgrounds, they were always trying to mix into the gospel so we still feel connected to our heritage, our ethnicity, our past, our traditions, or our family. Or as people would say, Pastor, you know, I come from a, a Church of Christ background or a Baptist background. Can we just keep doing X, Y, Z? No. Well, why not? Because we're not trying to establish the Church of Christ. We're not trying to establish the Church of Billy Graham or the Church of the Baptist. We're trying to establish the Church of Jesus Christ. And so the internal pressure is they would give in to those things, as Paul says here, well, I'm not trying to please man, I'm trying to please God. See, weak-minded leaders in the church, elders or pastors, when people with influence, which he gets into later on in chapter 2, people with influence say, well, Paul, yeah, I, I like this church, but, you know, the worship's a little long for me, and the, the preaching's way too long for me, and, and you know, what if... What if, you know, I gave a little bit bigger offering and we just shorten this down? Paul says, who am I to, to try to please men? And I will tell you, when the church starts to give up the freedoms of the gospel and get into false gospels, is when people start caving into the influence of people who are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they start conforming the gospel or the word to people of influence, you actually lose the influence of heaven is what Paul is talking about here. And so he says there's fake news out there. There's fake news around us. Actually, the word the Romans use for Augustus is the same word for gospel, evangelion, which means the good news. And so when the Romans would talk about Caesar, they would say this is the gospel. He has brought us prosperity. He's brought us freedom. He's lowered our taxes. He's given us peace. He's given us victory over enemies. Evangelion, on the good news of Caesar. That's crazy to me. That the word we use to describe the finished work of Jesus was used as a word to describe anything you thought was good that was good news. And these believers in Galatia started believing the good news of Rome more than the good news of of Jesus. And these false apostles, these false teachers come into play and they start preaching new messages and new gospels. And Paul gets so frustrated, so frustrated. He says, Listen, even if an angel from heaven, if the archangel Michael or Gabriel shows up and preaches another message, let him be sent to hell. Because this gospel is so true and so valuable. I didn't get this from Peter or Paul. I didn't get this from you. I got this from Jesus himself. And so if anybody else tells you otherwise, they're from a pit from hell. It's powerful. And so to know what a false gospel is, what is the real gospel? We covered this last week. It's that Jesus is the saving king. He pre-existed with God the Father, and in accordance with God's promises, he became human in the line of David. He died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected on the third day, and was seen and was installed as king at God's right hand. He sent the Holy Spirit, and he will also return to rule. Any other gospel other than that is false. And a false gospel is anything that takes a part of that it adds something to that that makes or pretends like this is good news along with this. And it takes the attention away. It distorts the view. So now it's not just looking to Jesus. It's looking at Jesus plus this. We, we are led to believe that false gospels preach another Jesus. That's not true. It preaches Jesus plus anything else. Jesus plus works, Jesus plus doctrine, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, Jesus plus Allah, Jesus plus uh, 
messianic traditions. Jesus plus anything else is a false gospel because it says to God in heaven, Jesus isn't enough. And Paul lays it down and says either Jesus is enough or nothing is enough. So how do you, how do you spot a false gospel when they show up? Well, I think it's interesting that I, the people that talk about false gospels, there's two extremes in this world. You've got people, their whole ministry is calling out false gospels, and all they are is angry little men who can't get a job. And you have other people who never talk about false gospels because they are probably preaching a false gospel and they don't want to be exposed themselves. And so the balance is, how do you create that balance? Every single book in the New Testament, everyone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, all of them, all the way through Revelation, warns the church about false gospels, false teachers, false messages, messengers from angels, and even false prophets. But in our day and age, everybody wants to talk about false prophets. Well, I don't know if, you know, prophecy, I don't know about this prophecy or this prophecy. Do you know this guy prophesied Trump's going to win the election again for the next 400 years? He's going to live forever. Well, that's a false prophet. People will talk about false prophecies, but they won't preach about false gospels. Well, why? It's because you can make a good living off preaching a false gospel. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, I'm not trying to please men. I'm not trying to get paid for me. I'm trying to serve Christ. Walter S. Martin, years ago, was a Baptist theologian. He wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Cults, incredible textbook. In there, he defines what the cult is. Any cult, he says this, is anything that takes just enough of Jesus, but elevates or exalts another prophet, priest, or teacher, takes just enough of the word to make it traditional enough, but then adds another revelation, the Book of Mormon or the, or the Quran, or adds another revelation, and then adds a system of works to it, is a false gospel or is the cult. Well, why does that work? Well, it's because, you know, it's Jesus plus David Koresh. Well, it's the Bible plus these extra books. Well, then how do works get involved? Because you can't control people without giving them works to do. It's just modern-day spiritual slavery. And so how can you, in the day and age where there's a lot of false gospels out there, know a false gospel? Number one is this. False gospels always underemphasize Jesus and always overemphasize another person, prophet, teacher. Does that not make sense to you? That anybody who underemphasizes Jesus but overemphasizes another person, it's already saying Jesus is not king. It's already trying to take your focus or your perspective off Jesus and put it on another person. In charismatic churches, we are the worst. Because we'll see Jesus oh, plus T.D. Jakes. Jesus plus the new prophet of the day. Jesus plus this new fresh revelation. We are terrible about it because we so much want the new, we get tired of the old rugged cross. Number two is false gospels underemphasize spiritual deliverance and always overemphasize self-improvement. Well, God's not here to set you free from yourself. He's actually here to improve you to a better, newer version of yourself. You see this with a lot of, a lot of things that say, you know, God loves you just the way you are. No, that is not true. He loves you, but he loves you enough not to keep you that way. Number three, false gospels always underemphasize what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and overemphasize what you must accomplish in his name. Meaning, if it's talking more about you need to do this, that, this, this, here's your rules, here's your list, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to accomplish, here's what you need to do to be saved, here's what you need. I told my pastor one time, I said, Pastor, you make it really easy to be saved, but you make it really hard to stay that way. What I was saying was, you're underemphasizing the finished work of Jesus and overemphasizing the works of the people. Number four, false gospels underemphasized eternity and the spiritual things and always overemphasized the temporary and the flesh. So every single false gospel, you'll see, we're going to go through six real quick, that you see will fit in that category because false gospels always overpromise and always underdeliver. Always. They promise that God's going to change your life. I've been in church world enough that if the marketing for the church event says, you got to be here, this is going to be the greatest service in the world, God's going to change your life, I'm not going. 
I know all that means is it's going to be a normal church service with a lot more hype, and they're going to take 14 offerings. I'm not going. Right? They always overpromise and underdeliver. It's like you buy a car and they give you a lifetime warranty. You know they're saying you have a lifetime warranty. There is no way you qualify for that lifetime warranty. Right? Same thing with false gospels. They promise you something, but they're never going to deliver on what that is. And, and so the problem with the false gospels say, Pastor, why are you preaching on false gospels? Let's just preach the gospel. It's because the gospel you listen to or you follow will determine what type of disciple you become. Whatever gospel you're buying into will determine what type of disciple you become. Because you are shaped by the news you listen to. You're shaped by the, by the voices that you surround yourself with. And what we're seeing is there's so many people that are more shaped by false gospels than they are Jesus himself. And what makes it even worse is a false gospel, if you don't squash it out, will actually become its own religion where it elevates something else as the worship or the focus of worship other than Jesus. Because all religions have these things. They share some type of promise of hope. They demand loyalty and devotion. They have creeds and confessions. They have worship services and offerings. They have training and discipleship, and they use religious symbols. If you don't believe me, just look at the LGQBT. They share a promise of hope. You... God can love you just the way you are. You can be who you really are. They promise hope. They demand loyalty and devotion. If you don't believe me, if you try to get out of that group, they will persecute you. They have their own creeds and confessions. If you watch, they have many worship services. They have their offerings that you can give to. They have the religious symbols, the flag that they hang outside of buildings that are showing their devotion to a certain religion. Like, and you can go through all of these with that. And so I want to unpack six of these because I believe these are the most influential in our culture, in the shoals in America that are out there. And some of you are going to say, I left one off the list, the prosperity gospel. Are you a prosperity guy? No, there's so many people that attack the prosperity gospel, there's no reason even to address it in the room. Like, because every false gospel does this. They take one scripture and they make that the cross. Instead of looking at the cross and letting all the, script, all the other scriptures filter through Jesus, they take a scripture and filter Jesus through that scripture, right? So does God want you to prosper? Absolutely. When you read the Bible, he wants you to have good health. He wants you to be content with what he's given you. He wants you to invest your talents. God wants you to prosper. Now, does that mean that you're going to be rich? No, but it does mean that Jesus has provided a way for you to obtain what he's called you to obtain. So number one, the self-help gospel preaches personal forgiveness over spiritual transformation. The self-help gospel is one that says that Jesus loves you so much, that, that, that you had so much potential, that he just couldn't leave you here without you reaching your potential. And so he had to leave heaven and come to earth to try to help you reach this amazing potential you have. And it becomes this self-centered, man-focused gospel. Scott McKnight, a theologian, said, the most common gospel preached today focused almost exclusively on forgiveness only. Why is it the most popular? Because it's so easy and so simple. What I heard was that you can have the one without the other. You can be saved and not be a disciple. And what happens is you start thinking, God cares more about me. God is following me, trying to bless me as I walk, instead of me following Jesus, hoping to become more like him. Dallas Willard called it vampire Christianity. You want to just, just enough of the blood of Jesus to be forgiven and not feel bad about yourself, but nothing else. I don't want his lordship. I don't want his kingship. I don't want to follow him. I just want to keep living my life but not feel bad about the things I'm doing. One other person called it moralistic therapeutic deism, which means you try to be a little bit more moral. I'm going to try not to drink as much. I'm going to try not to sleep around. But God will help me feel better about myself when I do. And he's not a personal God. There's not really a relationship. He's just kind of the, the spiritual force upstairs that's here to guide my life to my blessings and my prosperity. Right? What's dangerous about this is it's real. And you see it when people start preaching a gospel. All you have to do is raise your hand and say yes to Jesus. He loves you so much. He just wants what's best for you. 
He wants, you could throw Joel Osteen, you could throw a lot of voice in there. He just loves you so He couldn't leave you that way. He just loves you so much. He wants you to feel better about yourself. It's very insecurity, self-affirmation based. And what happens is that's not the gospel that Jesus preached or Peter. On the day of Pentecost, here's the gospel Jesus that Peter preached. He said, listen, this dude you killed is the king. And you killed him, thought you were going to get rid of him. But guess what? He was raised from the dead. And for 40 days, he came walking with us, talking with us, preaching to us about this kingdom. Then he ascended into heaven. He said, hey, but when I leave, I'm going to pour my spirit out upon you. He just poured his spirit out upon us just like he said. And guess what? He is coming back, and he is not happy. And all the Jews around said, well, what must we do? And he said, repent and believe that he is the king so you can be saved. Peter didn't stand up and say, hey, brothers, you're such special people. You're so amazing. Like, God has this incredible purpose for your life. He wants you to be an astronaut. He wants you to be a teacher. He wants you to be there. But he wants to help you get there. And all you can do is raise your hand and say yes to Jesus. He's going to bless your socks off, and you're going to be who he called you to be. That's not what he preached. Because it's a gospel of the kingdom, not a gospel of the citizens. And so the self-help one is there. In the story, it says the fall is seen as a failure of humans to reach their potential. And sin is primarily about us, not what we did to God, but about us not living up to our standard. When in reality, sin is about not living up to his standard. And I tell you this, God loves you. He does love you. That is the motivation for the gospel. He loves you, but his ultimate goal is not for you to be happy. His ultimate goal is for you to be holy so the Holy Spirit can live within you and he can bring the joy of the Spirit into your soul. That's the point of the gospel. Number two, the second one, is a legalistic gospel preaches doctrine and religious works over the finished work of Jesus. In Galatia, it was the Jews bringing circumcision back. Right? Could you imagine if we said, hey, new members class coming up, we have essentials coming up. Guys, here's the line for circumcision. And all the women said it, praise God. Could, could you imagine, like the Jews were trying, well, why were they doing that? Because they were trying to keep their political freedoms, and so they're trying to add the Jewish customs to the new Christian faith because they wanted to keep this exemption from the persecution of Rome. And so out of their fear, they start adding works or taking away the freedoms of the Christians in order to protect their political freedoms. Right? And so it becomes difficult. Many people that are, are legalistic or fundamentalist, the verses they focus on is Acts 2, which is called, repent and be baptized, or pursue holiness and be holy as he is holy. And they take those scriptures, but then they filter Jesus through those scriptures instead of taking Jesus and his finished work and filtering those through the finished work of Jesus. And what happens is they start adding things to the gospel. Right? And so some of us come from religious backgrounds. Or some of you have a Pentecostal background that tell you, if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues, you aren't saved. Well, we know that's not true. The thief on the cross, he didn't pray in tongues when Jesus talked to him. But yet he went to heaven. Other people say, Pastor, you know, I have a Church of Christ background. If you don't get baptized the moment you are saved, you're not going to heaven. Problem, thief on the cross. Other problem, New Testament church baptized once a year. That's a problem. And you start adding, well, Pastor, you know, I believe you don't do this. And then you get into Calvinism where they say, well, if you don't believe this doctrine, you're not really saved. And you can spot it as a false gospel because people start looking like the people that are preaching those false gospels. Like, I, I, I'm not a Calvinist. I love Calvinism theology. I love to read all theology. But it's amazing to me that almost every Calvinist I know acts and walks and talks just like John Calvin or Charles Spurgeon. Right? And so what is it? They're believing a fossil. They don't look like Jesus. They look like Calvin. Right? It's interesting. I believe in women in ministry. I believe Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. I saw Paul affirm 16 women in Romans 16 in ministry. I see Deborah in the Old Testament as a judge of all of Israel. Like throughout Scripture, you'll find women that God is using in ministry. Right? So when Beth Moore, the whole debate with Beth Moore came out, I publicly affirmed women in ministry and Beth Moore, which we do here at this church. And there was a guy that helped coach RJ's AU basketball team a couple years ago who slid up on my Facebook and started commenting, bashing me, calling me a false teacher. 
right? Like nothing on a Monday morning says, you know, God is good, like somebody calling you a false teacher on Facebook. And I was like, man, what are you talking about? Like we can agree to disagree. Like, and this is my opinion. If you don't believe women should be in ministry, that's your preference. But that's not God's opinion. I believe women are called to ministry. That's my preference. I'm not pushing my preference on you. Don't put your preference on me or my church or the women who are anointed of God in this church. Right? So, so I post this. He starts going through, well, 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, da, da, da. I said, whoa, let's go back there, Church of Christ, boy. I said, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5 says that women should be prophesying with their head covered. You can't prophesy if you can't talk. No, no, 1 Corinthians 14, 29. So the women, I said, listen, maybe the women wouldn't need to talk if the men were praying in tongues more. Oh, we ain't talking about tongues. We're talking about women. I said, no, no, listen, bro. I said, it's not the gospel. The gospel is the finished work of Jesus. This is peripheral. He says, no, this is the gospel, and you're a false teacher. See, a legalistic gospel will say that Jesus isn't good enough. If you don't believe like this, if you don't do like this, if you don't teach like this, if you don't do like this, and at some point, it becomes that the snake begins eating its own tail. Like, I've seen this now with the reform movement. That first they're bashing, you know, Pentecostals, that's not right. Baptists, and these reformed people started building this case against everybody else. Well, now it's starting to build a case against itself. It becomes detrimental. And here's, here's the bad thing about this. Most of the people in the Bible Belt what they've experienced is not the gospel of Jesus or the kingdom. They've experienced the gospel of legalism. And here's what it looks like. You know, it, it's, it's sad to me that this is a reality, but this is the reality. People come to church, they come to Christ, they have all this junk. They get anxiety, they got sin, they got addiction, they got shame. They're way down and buried. No one comes to Jesus for the most part when life is going good. They come because they're tired of carrying all this baggage around in their life. Finally, it gets so much they can't carry it anymore. They come into a church service and the preacher says, oh, brother, all you do is lay it at the feet of Jesus. Just lay it at Calvary. Right? They raise their hand. They're crying at the altar. They lay their bags down. They feel great. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. Listen, well, after service, we need to talk to you for just a second. We actually have this new believers class. Hey, you need to pick up this doctrine. If you don't believe that God is sovereign and the cause of all things, then you're going to hell. Hey, by the way, if you don't get baptized immediately, you're going to hell. Hey, by the way, if you don't do this, and they add all these other duties and works on people, so that people came in looking for the joy of the Lord and the yoke that is easy and the burden is light, is now walking out with more junk. Now it's just religious junk. And it doesn't matter if it's circumcision, if it's good works, doesn't matter what it is. Now the burden that you had that was relieved is now added back on by a bunch of religious people. Why? Because it's easier to control somebody who's tired than somebody who's free. And Paul is just like, I'm done. He said, I came. I was the most zealous of all. I came from the legalistic Pharisees. I was the most legalistic of all legalists. And I'm here to tell you, you don't need all that. Jesus is enough. And again, like I said last week, you can't confuse the results of salvation for the cause of salvation. Will you pick up a cross and carry it daily? Yes, you will. Will there be good works that follow you? Yes, there will. But that's not the point of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus finished the work. Now you get to serve him out of the joy and overflow of your heart. Instead of trying to earn his love, you're saying thank you for his love. The third one, which is going to make everybody in the room mad, is the political gospel. The political gospel preaches that the kingdom of God comes through the government instead of through the Holy Spirit. I hear this a lot in, in like Christian nationalism. And I'll say anything you hyphenate with Jesus or Christ is a false gospel. Christian nationalism. You start saying, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian. You can't hyphenate Jesus. He's either all or he's nothing. And so what happens is with this... As faith has declined in America, we see religious passion is increased. And so how is that? Because instead of people being passionate about the kingdom of heaven, now they're just passionate about politics. Now they're sowing seed, not into the church and God's mission, now they're sowing seeds into political candidates. Now they're not passionate about Jesus, they're passionate about President Trump, or they're passionate about President Biden. Well, I don't know anybody passionate about President Biden, they're passionate about whoever may be next. Like... 
And what they're saying is, Christian, and, and what's bad is, is there's a truth. I believe Christians should be politically active. But I believe you should be politically active for a different reason than what I'm hearing in culture. You should be politically active because you have values that as a citizen of the United States, you want to see represented in America. But if, you're, if your whole purpose of being politically active is trying to advance God's kingdom through politics, the gospel is not transferred from legislation to legislation. The gospel is transferred from person to person. And people say, oh, Pastor, you just don't understand. Just imagine if all of the government was Christian. I can't imagine it. I've seen it before. You know what they called that? The Dark Ages. Everybody was Christian. The church ran everything. And guess what? Just because they have the name Christian doesn't mean they're Christ-like. And when you try to force Christ on somebody, that doesn't produce Christ-likeness. Because it's the love of God that draws people in, not legislation. Plus, I remember before I was saved, Toya, we joke about this. People say, oh, brother, you better, you better do this or you're going to hell. I'm like, I don't even believe in your God. Right? So I'm not held to your standard. So just because you set a standard on me, that's not my standard. The holy standards of God are for the church. And we're living right. It actually is a light unto the city and produces all men to be drawn unto him. When you start believing the political gospel, you start saying things like this. I'm going to go all, into all the world and not preach the gospel. I'm going to go into all the world and vote correctly. Because you actually start believing that the politics is the good news. You start believing the nation is the kingdom. And believe me, God does not need America. America needs God. The gospel is not an American gospel. It's a kingdom gospel. We just have been blessed to have prosperity and the blessings and freedoms to celebrate that and share it with the rest of the world. Do I hope that continues? Absolutely. But when the first Christians got saved, they were not in a religious freedom environment. They are actually persecuted for it. And the persecution is what multiplied the church, not peace. And so when you start believing, and you'll start, it's going to come up. Oh, pastor, you know, if, if my candidate doesn't win, the world's going to be over. Like, well, I've heard this the last 20 elections, but guess what? Revelations 20 tells me the world's going to end at some point, and when it ends, Jesus comes back. That's not a bad thing. Plus, if you start saying things like that, now you're saying my trust is in man, not in God. It's kingdom, family, then nation. And when you get it right, it changes everything. Number four is the affirming gospel. The affirming gospel preaches that Jesus died to affirm you in your sin, not save you from your sin. See this in the, in the progressive movement. You see this in the LGBTQ+, whatever it is now. Just that Jesus died. He loves you so much. He loves you just the way you are. You don't see this gospel anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere do you see. And what it's doing is it's elevating the person in devaluing the transformation or deliverance that you're being saved from. And, and it sounds really good. And people that follow this gospel, it's like, well, God is love. God is love. Do you realize it says that like one time in Scripture? It says God is holy a whole lot. Well, you know, God is love. God is, and what they do is they change the definition of love to fit what they want it to fit into. So then it can approve of everything they want it to approve of and break down the gospel to where now it's so weak and powerless that it can no longer deliver people from the sin that Jesus died to deliver them from. And what happens to me, many times they start looking at the great commandment. Oh, the great commandment. We just got to love God and love people. That's, that's what, what happens, they start changing that to the gospel. And the great commandment, just so you know, was the people are asking, the religious people are asking Jesus, how do we fulfill the law? Not how we get saved. How do we fulfill the law? Jesus says, well, you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things fulfill the law. If you just love God, you're not going to have idols. You're not going to do this. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to sin against them. It, it sums up the law. It does not sum up the gospel. And the problem in many of our circles with this gospel is we start pretending like the great commandment is the gospel. The great commission is the gospel. It says, 
go into all the world, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you, and lo and behold, I'll be with you always. Which tells me the presence of God is contingent upon our obedience to going and making disciples. Now, the problem with us is this. Oh, Pastor, I, I see people do this all the time. This pastor doesn't me. You don't need to tell people what's wrong with them and help fix them. You just need to love them. You will love people straight into the pits of hell. The Great Commission didn't say, go and love everybody, make them feel good about themselves. It says, no, teach them. Teach them there's a better way. Teach them to obey my commandments. One of them is being the great commandment. Teach them. And lo and behold, I'll be with you always. And they'll say, well, pastor, this just doesn't seem very loving. Well, you see, Jesus catches the woman caught in the act of adultery. They bring her, throw her down, literally caught her in the act, throw her down in front of Jesus. They said, what are you going to do? He starts doodling in the sand. Basically says, he was without sin. Let him cast the first stone. Leans down, doodles again. People get up and leave. Jesus looks up and says, woman, where are your accusers? And what did Jesus do? Did he affirm her in her sin? No, he showed her mercy in her sin. But then he says this, you are free, now go and sin no more. It would not have been loving for Jesus to just affirm her in her sin. Okay, you're good, go do it again. No, he set her free from her shame and from her sin and from her guilt in order for her to be who he called her to be. Anything that affirms you in your sin is a message from hell. Number five is the new, spiritual, new age spirituality gospel preaches spirituality without the Holy Spirit. So, Pastor, this isn't this big. Yes, it is. Every time I go to Huntsville, every time I go in a bookstore, there is more Wiccan and New Age spirituality books than there are Christian books. You go to First Florence, there's more people selling gemstones and crystals than there are selling Christian materials. And what is Romans 120, they start saying, well, you know, God is the universe, God is actually, you know, in the stars, God is in the wind, God is in this. And they take some scriptures and they totally misconstrue them to now God is anything and everything, and they want spirituality, but you don't get spirituality without the Holy Spirit, because if it's spirituality without the Holy Spirit, all it is is an unholy spirit. And you got a lot of people playing with demons, thinking this is their salvation. Let me tell you this, if you put your salvation and your hope in a rock, you got a bad life. I'll say that if you're putting your hope in a rock, it must be a crack rock because it ain't going to help. Right? And you see this throughout Scripture. People say, well, you know, uh, God, you know I love God, but I, I just want to talk to my ancestors. And they died three or four generations ago. I just want to hear their point of view. That's demonic. Well, I want to I read my fortune. I want to do my, my horoscope. No, that's demonic. Anything that tries to replace the voice and the work of the Holy Spirit is demonic. And we live in a day and age where people want spirituality, but they've been so hurt by church, they reject church and God and just want the spirituality, and they end up with demons. Number six, last one. The social justice gospel preaches the kingdom of the gospel without the king of the gospel. So, Pastor, what's that mean? There's a whole group of people, more progressive, more liberal, that are, preach a gospel that the gospel is more governmental than it is personal. Right, they'll say things that they focus on scriptures. I'll read some of them. Isaiah 1, 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fathers, plead the widow's case. Micah 6, 6, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Right, th th those are good things. Those are results of the gospel. I'm a social justice guy. Our dream center fights generational poverty and childhood poverty. I believe in racial equality. I, I, I'm probably the only person stupid enough in this town that during 2020, in front of the statue, in front of the courthouse, I said this statue needs to go. It's a stronghold to the past that oppresses people currently. Like, I'm dumb enough to say that. I believe stuff like that needs to happen. I believe in equal justice. I believe in, in all these things. But that is not the gospel. The gospel does not advance through activism. Can you be active? Yes, but the gospel, BLM was the worst one. We start saying, this is the gospel. We got to make things right and fix these things. That sounds great, but that's not the gospel. 
But Christians should be active in making sure that widows, orphans, the poor, the oppressed, the people in injustice and racism are all wiped away. We should be the forerunners in that. But that's not the gospel. And when you start overemphasizing social justice, you lose eternal justice. And it's great that we do great works at the Dream Center. It's great that we do great works on the mission field. But social justice is not the goal. Redemptive justice is the goal. That I want to see you made right with Jesus. So that way your eternity, you are walking on streets of gold. Yes, you may be walking in poverty now, but I want to see you walking on streets of gold when you die. That is the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's not just salvation. It's the kingdom. It's that Jesus was the king who left heaven and came to earth to pay the price for the citizens to get back into the kingdom and that he set up his kingdom, lets us be a part of it, pours out his Holy Spirit as a guarantee, says I'm coming back and when I come back, I'm going to rule like I never left. That's the gospel. But here's our problem. And I close with this. That many of us are like hamsters on a hamster wheel. You're in this cage in life. Maybe it's a cage of anxiety, insecurity, fear, worry, depression, addiction, shame, guilt, whatever, whatever it may be. You're in this cage, but you can see outside the cage. You're like, if I could just get out of here, I can be free. And you jump on this hamster wheel and you just start running because you see freedom. You just start running and you put more effort in and more effort in. And maybe after a year, you keep, I'm done trying. Some of people come to church, they see, they see the freedom, they get in the hamster wheel of religion. Like, Pastor, I'm doing essentials. Pastor, I'm in a group. Pastor, I'm doing this. And they're just running and they're running and running. And finally, they just get tired and give up. And the reason for that is the gospel is not some hamster wheel to keep you occupied until he comes back. No amount of good efforts can get you out of this cage. The only way you can get out of the cage is for somebody bigger than you to open up the cage and get you out. And every false gospel preaches some form of get on the hamster wheel and run, baby, run. Only the gospel says, be still, I'm going to open this door, and if you trust me, I'm going to put my hand out, you can jump in my hand, and I'm going to take you to freedom, not just for here, but for all, all, for all of eternity. That's the gospel. And it takes trust that I'm not going to try to do this on my own. I'm going to trust that he can open the gates and take me to the promised land. And it takes trust that once you get in his hand, not to jump off his hand and start showing him how fast you can run. And it takes trust to not jump out of his hand and try to go back to the hamster cage because that's where you're comfortable. It takes trust to remain in the hands of the eternal king. And that's what Paul was so upset about. He said, why are you so quickly deserting the gospel of Christ? He's saying, why are you jumping out of this eternal hand of peace and joy and love and hope and freedom? Why? It's because our minds are so trained to religion and so trained to the culture that we get, we get awkward when we get to rest in God. You know how I know that? Because if we were to say we're going to cut all the music, we're just going to rest in the presence of God. Half of you would get unsettled after just a few seconds. That's why people don't take Sabbath or practice Sabbath because it gets so unsettled that I need to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. And it gets so unsettled, we just want to jump back on the hamster wheel because at least in the hamster wheel, I felt like somebody. You don't have to feel like somebody. You get to be with somebody. As you're with him, everything you need. As we said Romans 1, or Ephesians 1 earlier, in him is redemption and salvation, spiritual inheritance, peace, joy, hope, love. Everything you need is in him. And the only way to get it is to trust in him. If you would, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes real quick. I'm just going to take one quick second. I'm not going to have anybody stand up, come forward. We'll have the prayer team come down in a minute if you need prayer for anything. But maybe you've been bought into a false gospel. Maybe it's a self-help gospel. Easy believism, sloppy grace where you just thought, you know, raise my hand, I'm, I, I believe in God and I'm good. If he's not Lord and Savior, he's not really Savior. Maybe for some of you have been in legalism where you, you've been so burdened. 
by religion that you've pushed back from Jesus himself. Maybe some of you, it's been an affirming gospel that just you allow God to affirm you in your sin instead of deliver you from your sin. Maybe some of you, it's politics. It's been placed your hope and trust in the nation more than the kingdom. Whatever it is, this is the gospel. That you are caged in. You were born in a cage. And you've been dreaming for freedom. Freedom from your shame, your guilt, your fear, your worry, shame. You've been worrying, you've been running and running and running trying to find a way out. I'm here to tell you there is no way out from the inside. It only comes from the outside in. But you stop running. You look at your creator and say, I trust you. And he'll open up the gates. He'll put out his hand. And I'll ask you to trust him enough to jump in. And as you jump in, he begins to hold you. And for the first time, your creator who formed you is now holding you in those same hands. He washes you with his own blood, wiping away all sin, all shame, all guilt, all unrighteousness. And for the first time, you feel peace hope for eternity, joy, love. And he begins to speak into your life, his purpose, why he created you, why he planned you, why he made you. And he begins to hold you and caress you. And he says, trust me, and I'll carry you from here all the way to eternity. Maybe some of you have experienced that type of joy and peace before. When life got difficult, you jumped out of his hands because you thought he was causing it, not realizing he was carrying you through it. It's time to jump back in and trust him that he has a plan and he can fulfill the plan. That's you. I just want you to slip your hand up real quick. Say, Pastor, that today I need that. I need to jump back in his hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Wait just a second. pray in just a second. I need you to do me a favor. If you raise your hand, this is a big favor. I can have you come forward. If you swing by connection point when you leave, just say, hey, I've raised my hand with Pastor. We want to put a gift in your hand. One want to celebrate with you, but two, also help you stay in his hand and walk with him, hand in hand, from now all the way through the rest of your life. But Father, we love you. And we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your ability and your promises. We thank you for the gospel, which is in the finished work of King Jesus. Father, for those people that raise their hand right now saying, I'm tired. I need to get off this hamster. I've been trying so many things. Father, I pray as they repent and jump off the wheel, they turn to you and rest in your hands. And I pray you cleanse them from all unrighteousness, that you wash them, that you set their feet on the solid rock of Jesus. And you allow for them to walk in holiness and righteousness and joy and in peace and in hope and in love from now all the way through the rest of their lives in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, 